opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I want to first wish everyone a happy new year, and uh, I hope you're as excited as I am for 2016 and what's to come. We have some uh, exciting guests in our lineup for the show, and uh, it's always good to be back in the studio uh, after a holiday. I also want to say thank you to Holy Redeemer Health System and to Entrust Financial for being our core sponsors and partnering with us to bring you the show each week. If you're listening and you want to join our conversation, we'd love to hear from you, and you can do that by calling in to 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. And always be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net for our lineup and And also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. We've got some great information in there about upcoming events, uh, as well as our lineup and who's going to be on the show. Uh, This afternoon, we are lucky to have Dr. Dupree joining us from the hospital. She's on the phone with us. And after we chit-chat with her for a few minutes, we're going to be joined by our guest this afternoon, Jillian Zoe Segal, who is the author of New York Characters and her most recent book, Getting There. So let's start with Dr. Dupree. I understand she had a wild and crazy weekend in New York uh, for New Year's Eve, and we're going to hear all about it. (laughs) Wild and crazy. Wild and crazy. You probably saw the pictures on the website then, I guess. Well, to tell you the truth, I'm going to do that as soon as I go home. You you know, it's uh, here's the deal. I am blessed to have great friends who invited us um, as their guests. They um, had some tickets with their company, and um, we got to go to the Hard Rock Cafe, which is right in Times Square, right below where the ball drops. And um, we were invited to a party there, which was just phenomenal. And uh, there was a the gentleman that was in charge of the party, Kevin Thompson, the entertainer, who... Um, if you go to his Instagram page, you can see a lovely photograph of myself and uh, one of the people at the party, which was the picture that Kevin posted afterwards, when we were all dancing and having a great time. And uh, it was it was a party of all parties. Great DJ, amazing music, great food, fun, friends. And the best part was, you know, I've, I've always loved the thought of going to Times Square to be there with the confetti and the, the energy, just because you feel that energy rise at midnight. I mean, it's like it's the place to be around the world when you're ringing the new year. Like, that is the, I mean, I met more Australians and New Zealanders and people from England, like, all over the world came. Well, most of the people there left their hotels or wherever they were early in the morning, and they went out to these outside barricades, and they had all of Times Square cordoned off. 
and you had to have a special pass to get in. And most of these people went and stood in Times Square um, from way early in the morning um, until midnight. Like, there's no bathrooms. I, it became this kind of joke about having these adult diapers. Um, like, and you're, yeah, you're literally standing on your feet all day long outside to be there for that moment. And so millions of people come in, and they're all over the place. And we actually had to have little passes to get plus the police bar- uh, barricades to go to dinner and then to get back around to the hard rock. And you had a nicely engraved little invitation, and then they took your driver's license to make sure you are who you are. And then we had these you know, fabulous little um, sequiny uh, bracelets that they put on us. But we could go in and out all day long. I mean, all evening long. So any time a performer was coming on the stage, you could go outside to hear them play, put your coat back in the check room. So I have to tell you, I was completely spoiled. It was, I was an absolute prima donna. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I could have done it any other way at, at my age. Um, but being in and out, feeling that energy, um, seeing the police presence, the police are unbelievable. Um, that uh, the the police were everywhere, and you felt very very safe. So I did not have any concerns whatsoever for my safety. So um, bottom line was we we got to the um, we got to close to midnight. Went outside, and I have to tell you, I've never felt that kind of a um, like crazy frenetic. Um, energy when millions of people are screaming, you know, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, and then fireworks and confetti, and it was just—it was the party of all parties. I mean, I was dancing next to Bill Nye, the Science Guy, which was very <laughs> cool. Um, and uh, then after the after the uh, the big event was done, like it was it was like cockroaches when the lights go on. The streets emptied, and there was nobody there. I was you I know, was going to ask you what happens at the, you know so away. after that moment they, they disappear. Yeah, and uh, and then. And Jessie J was one of the performers, and she um, came into um, the Hard Rock Cafe, and she played for um, this small group, which was just uh, unbelievable. Her her pitch, her um, vocals, her songs. So I didn't know who she was before that night, but I have to tell you, I do know who she is now, and I do have her songs on my iPhone. I did download them because, um, not that I've become a groupie, but I have a tremendous respect for this woman. She's a great performer, um, great singer. And, you know, again, it brings up my uh, life age-old question of why is it that British singers, when they speak, have such a heavy British accent, and when they sing, you cannot tell that they're British? So <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's always kind of baffled me, um, but it was, it was a night that um, – I, I did actually a little photo uh, book for the group that was there, so I will have to share that with you. I can send you the link. So I, it, they don't have the book yet, so once the book is public to them, I will make sure that uh, I share the link with you so that you can see it. But it was, I, it just, it's a night that you can't forget. Yeah. And um, and the weekend was finished off with um, my five of my six sisters, and I were able to have lunch with my dad, whose 87th birthday. I is did see those today. pics. Loved it. Loved dad it. Dad turned eight. Turns 87 today, and. 
and um, it's a great honor uh, to call myself his daughter. And um, we had a fabulous day, and he got to show us off in the center of his retirement community amongst all his friends. And I got to see my mom as well. So all in all, it's been a very fabulous 2016 so far. So far. And um, except for the fact that uh, the phones are ringing off the hook here at our office for women with abnormal mammograms and new breast cancer diagnoses. So that aspect of my life hasn't changed. We Mm -hmm. haven't gotten less cancer in 2016. We're actually... um, as I've told you before, we're, the incidence of cancers are the rise. So anybody that's listening and that you know wants to do something right to start off their new year right, make sure you do your breast exam. Make sure you get your clinical exam from your doctor and get your mammogram, your whole breast ultrasound, your 3D mammogram, whatever imaging studies you're supposed to get, your MRI. You know, talk to your doctors and make sure that you're getting the appropriate uh, breast health screening because um, it's the perfect time of the year to remember it. Yeah, and guess what? There's nobody who who doesn't know someone if they're not directly affected. Oh, yeah. And we should probably give the um, your foundation's address every week. Make sure, in case people yeah. want to go there for the resources. Right. We have um, we have fabulous support groups and support, support services through the Healing Consciousness, which is hcfbucks.org, and our Holy Redeemer uh, practice, which is comprehensivebreastcare.com. And um, I'm actually in my office at Women's Care in Southampton for Holy Redeemer. This is where our um, medical imaging for breast imaging is. So just know that we're here if anybody needs us and uh, hopefully I can meet people socially on the dance floor at Hard Rock Cafe and not in my office you know, <laughs> as a patient, but uh, however it happens, it happens and uh, we're just trying to take good care of our patients. Yeah, and you do. And I love that you're a surgeon and a dancer. <laughs> we, uh, When you see the pictures, it's it's pretty funny. Kevin, Kevin's brother, the entertainer, apparently was the photographer, so um, his pictures are posted on, on the internet and he was very happy happy with our group because we actually have men that were dancing from the get-go, like at 8.30 at night. He said, usually these parties, the women will get out and dance and the guys need to get liquored up, but our guys need no alcohol whatsoever <laughs> to be on the dance floor being crazy and having fun. So it Good. was um, it was truly a wonderful, wonderful evening. Great. And uh, I didn't meet nearly as many people as our guest has met in her lifetime. I bet. Uh, but you know what? I'm, I'm on my way and uh, I take every opportunity I can to meet whomever I can. So who knows who's in my future for 2016? That's right. Good stuff. And and a perfect segue to bring Jillian on the show because she she and you and I have a lot in common just in our interest and passion for meeting new people and, and learning new pearls of wisdom. So um, Jillian, I want to welcome you to the show. And again, for the listeners, we're joined by Jillian Zoe Segal. She is the author of New York Characters, and her most recent book is called Getting There. And it's a book of mentors. She was able able to um, land some really big name uh, people across all industries and get to them and, and have some really candid conversations. Welcome to the show, Jillian. Thank you so much for having me. We're, we're thrilled. I um, I wanted to you know mention the fact that the book is is about thirty mentors and and these are names that our listeners would probably know. But um, as I mentioned to you, our show is going to be about as much about you um, as it will be talking about the mentors and and some of the advice that they've given in your book. So just to give the listeners a sense of of your background and where you came from, um, I thought we'd start with your eight years growing up. In in Montreal, Canada. What was that like? 
Um, that it was great. I um, I grew up in a town called West Mount, um, and it's it's um, a mountain actually. Is that the, the neighborhood is on a mountain, and I have really nice memories of walking to school in a blizzard. Oh boy! <laughs> up north, um, you can really we, say I'm that to your daughter. Kidding. Yeah, right, right. We all tell I'm our kids kidding. we had to walk to school in ten feet of snow, and you really it's can. A, it's a nice memory in hindsight, <laughs> but I remember when I moved to New York, I thought it was so mild here, and there was hardly any snow, and um, and it was so crowded. <laughs> um, so anyway, I loved Montreal, and I still love it. I still go back and visit. Um, I don't have any family left there, but um, but it's still a place that I like to go back to. Well, people, you know, go there regularly for vacation, so what a nice mm-hmm. place to, you know, spend a little bit of your growing up years. Um, then what precipitated the move to New York? Uh, my parents were looking for a change. And um, and I think, you know, there was a lot going on politically um, in, in Quebec that made it hard to do business there. So it was a time when a lot of people left, a lot of English-speaking people left. Okay. So tell me what, you know, you, you've written two books, and that's a huge accomplishment. Um, you received a degree in, in a Bachelor of Arts from University of Michigan and a law degree. So I was curious to know what your aspirations were as a young girl. Um, as a young girl, like a little girl? Yeah. Or- growing, yep. During your school years. Well, during my school years, I think like many people, I wanted to be an artist or a ballerina, <laughs> but uh, or a vet. But um, but then I didn't really want to do two of those things. But I still consider myself an artist. Um, so so I went to law school um, after college because that's sort of what was done in my family. Okay. Um, it was it was you know what we sort of had had to do um i have three brothers and we all went to law school um and then afterwards i thought what am i going to do i'm not sure um I'm not sure, you know, that I want to practice law, and I don't know what I want to do. And around that time, I read a commencement address that was given by Kathy Geiswhite, um, who's a cartoonist. And she spoke at the University of Michigan, which is my alma mater. And, um, and she told the graduating class that when they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do, they should think about the classes that they really loved and the experiences that they really loved and sort of remember, you know, um, if you remember what you love, you'll remember who you are and then you could do anything. Um, And so I really took her exercise seriously and I literally wrote down my favorite classes and I thought, you know, I loved that photography course. And so I decided to um, to pursue photography, um, and I went to the International Center of Photography in New York City, and I did a one-year certificate program. Um, and while I was there, I thought of the idea for my first book, and that book is called New York Characters, and it was um, pretty photography-based. There was one photo 
next to one page of text. Uh, I could tell more about the the book if you want, but I'll just keep keep it moving. And then um, and then later on, I did my second book, which which is called Getting There: A Book of Mentors, and that's the one that came out recently. And that does have um, I took a portrait of each of my subjects, but it's way more text driven. Um, and that's sort of how my career, you know, ha- has evolved. And now I'm working on a couple different entrepreneurial ideas. And I, did, I will ask you about those as well. You know, you mentioned um, the professor that kind of got you thinking about your future and your career. And I, of course, wrote down a couple of my favorite uh, quotes and, and pearls of wisdom, as you called them in your book, of just a couple of the people that you spotlighted. And, of course, Warren Buffett is a name everyone is familiar with. And one of the things that he did say, which, um, you know, sometimes you read a quote and, you know, it it sticks with you a little bit. Sometimes you read a quote and it kind of gives you chills and, and you want to, you know, um, use it in the future with other people. He said, when you remember what you love, you will remember who you are. And when you remember who you are, you can do anything. Um, I love that. I correct you? Okay. Because that was Kathy Geiswhite who said that. And she she is the person who wrote the commencement address that I was speaking about. So I I wasn't... um, Speaking about a professor, I was speaking about the 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 person who spoke to the graduates. She's a famous cartoonist. Okay, now that's anyway, interesting. Yes, yeah, that did, quote is from Kathy Guy's. It life. is. Did Warren Buffett say something similar or? He said a lot of amazing things. I could I could go on for for a whole hour about what he said, but um, <laughs> he he basically talked about pursuing something within your circle of competence, um, and and he explained that everyone has different strengths and weaknesses, and if you um, you know you've got to know what to leave out. That's as important as knowing what to focus on. Right. So he explains that he's not good at everything. But he he's honed in on what he is good at, and that's how he's become a major success. Um, and he quotes Tom Watson, who's the founder of IBM, who says, I'm no genius, but I'm smart in spots. And yes. I stay around those spots. Yeah, love that. Um, that's another great quote. Anyway, yeah. So, so um so that uh, he he talks about that, which is sort of like if you know who you are, you can do anything. If you understand your strengths and weaknesses, then you can excel because you can hone in on your strengths. And you know, it's always interesting. We talk about that a lot on the show. Getting to know, you know, self knowledge and self awareness is so key to success. And you would think that it would be an easy thing to do, um, you know, know yourself, but it's actually more difficult. Um, then yeah, I think. Yeah, a lot of times um, people are doing what they think they should do mm-hmm. versus, you know, versus what they really should do, um, which is, you know, be be true to to themselves. And I think that if you're doing something that that you're not you know, particularly good at or something. And an example of that is 
if you're forcing yourself to be an engineer because your family thinks you should be an engineer, it, it might not be something, you know, there's some people who have minds that are meant to do that and they love it and they're good at it. And some people you're sort of, um, you know, trying to put a round peg in a square hole or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but, um, Anyway, I th- I think that um that that that's sort of the idea. And that was probably your experience when you mentioned, you know, you felt it was going to law school was what you were supposed to be doing, but you later learned that's really not where your heart was. Yeah. Yeah. And so and if you don't do something um that you are passionate about, you'll never have the fuel to jump the, you know, inevitable hurdles in your way to become a success. Right. I think Dr. Dupree has a comment yeah. about that. We we see this, I see this so much in, in healthcare. I, in medical school, I had so many people in my class at the time, and this was 25 years ago, where the reason they went to medical school is because they were expected to go to medical school because their family, um, they came from a family of doctors. And you cannot do what we do every day if you don't love it. You cannot get out of bed and, you know, be driving to the hospital at 5.30 in the morning when it's cold out in the middle of winter to go to surgery or to sit down with someone and discuss a cancer diagnosis if you don't love what you do. And it's unfortunate because I had, I have many of my colleagues who no longer practice medicine. So mm-hmm. they uh, they, were they don't uh, sort of they into it. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, and, and I had the same, the same experience. You know, I, I tried a lot of different things before I finally landed this show and, and love every, you know, every minute of it. Um, it's, that's really a very important piece of advice. Um, I wanted to talk about what your favorite lessons from the book are. You, I'm sure you have, you know, there's a lot of information chock full of good ideas. What are some of your main takeaways that you use over and over? Um, one thing that I love, well, Warren Buffett, I could go on and on, but one one thing that he said that I love is he taught me um, that you can always tell someone to go to hell tomorrow. And basically what that means is that um, you've got to control, control your temper and impulses. So he says if someone does something, um, you know, that bothers you, instead of blurting out, something saying or doing something that you might regret just sit on it for a day or so mm-hmm. and he said you can always tell them tomorrow to go to hell you haven't lost your opportunity so, <laughs> or any day moving forward <laughs> yeah, i love it because you know when something goes wrong so many times you might do something you wish you hadn't whether it's just yell or you know, make a decision out of, you know, the heat of passion or whatever it is. I think if you could, you know, train yourself to sort of hold that in, wait a beat. You can, you can yell the next day. You could, you could fire someone the next day. Whatever it is you want to do. But at least you'll know that you really want to do it and it's not an impulsive thing. So I love, I love that and I love the way, he, the way, you know, it, it was put. Yeah. And you know what? That's a great tip for sitting on an email before you hit send. I think, yeah. you know, it's hard to not respond emotionally about things that you're passionate about. Um, very hard. So it's, to, a great, it's a great life lesson though to learn how to respond and not react. Because when you react, it's a, it's almost like a visceral re- response. And when you actually reply and you think about something, you have a chance to, 
you know, kind of um, mull it over in your brain and come out to a place where you're not coming purely from an emotional um, reflex, but you're actually coming from a place of, you know, some thought and integrity. Because once, you know, it, when you say something, it's out there and it's done. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. like with email and with text messaging, people can read them over and over and over again. So once you hit that send button, it's there in front of someone's face, you know, in yeah. perpetuity until they hit delete, you know. Yep, you've got to be you've got to be extra careful because um, they can read over every sentence and, and let it sink in again and again. Um, and oh, so another another um, piece of wisdom from the book that I love um, comes. There's a quote I'm going to say from Kathy Ireland, mm-hmm. but um, but this notion comes from a lot of people in my book. It's sort of a major theme, but I like how Kathy puts it. So she says, if you never fail, it means you're not trying hard enough. And I think that one of the biggest obstacles people face in the world, you know, in their personal lives and their careers, is the fear of failure. Um, it's it's the fear of failure and then what happens after you fail, how you deal with failure. Um, and so Kathy, her story is that she was um, a famous Sports Illustrated swimsuit model um, in her younger days. And as she started getting older, she wanted to pursue something that wasn't based on her looks. So she tried for years at different entrepreneurial ventures. She tried a skincare line, some arts and crafts projects, a beer company, all these different things, and she failed. She, she, you know, lost money. She had invested a lot of time in these things. Finally, she was able to launch her own brand with, um, of all things, a line of socks. And how that happened is that somebody... Um, called her up and said, hey, you're pregnant. Would you like to uh, model a pair of socks for me, for my company? And she said, you know what, I'll do it if they could be Kathy Ireland socks and we'll be partners. Um, And so she started her own brand that way, and that is how she made her her fortune. She has now got a $2 billion business. She's bigger than Martha Stewart, and her name is on over 15,000 products. So anyway, so, so she says, you know, if you never fail, it means you're not trying hard enough. And I just think that the next time you encounter a failure, if you think about those words and think, okay, this means I'm doing my job and I'm going to keep going, then you're, you know, miles ahead of the pack. That's so true. And, so, you know, if I remember correctly, something else she said that I think is important is because she she uh, received a lot of criticism. Um, of course, you always do when you're, you know, well-known like that and in the media. And she said, while criticism hurts, it can also be a gift. That criticism, right, if you're able to, to move past that, that's just, you know, helping you to become stronger and uh, be able to take, the, you know, that kind of negativity. Yes, she says it, it, um, it can be an opportunity to learn and it can be an opportunity to teach. Because you can't just always, you know, ignore all criticism because sometimes people have a point mm-hmm. and if you listen to them, it'll help you. 
Um, so you can't just say forget about criticism or whatever. So she says look at it. Sometimes sometimes it will be an opportunity to learn. And other times um, she has used it to teach people. So you know there's all these haters out there. On the, um, and no matter, you know, who you are, you're, if you're out there in the public eye, like you were saying, you're going to get criticized. Um, you know, whatever you say or do, there'll be people on the Internet who, who you know, who hate it. So, um, so she has actually co- contacted a couple of the haters out there. And, you know, one of them, she hosted an award show, and someone who happened to be the CEO of a big company started tweeting that she looked like um, she was on drugs and that she looked pregnant or something. Anyway. Yeah, mocking her she, physical appearance. Appearance. Yeah, it was and terrible. That she was yeah. on drugs or something. Yeah. But, and she wasn't, you know. But anyway, so she called the person up and said, why would you, you know, I just wanted to... Um, know why you would write those things and the person was really embarrassed and apologized and she she said that she called this person up not so much really for herself but she also doesn't want this kind of behavior to perpetuate you know now he won't do that to anybody else yeah. either oh what a great I love that she kind of put him on the spot but she did it politely right she just yeah, kind of asked very politely she yep. said you know my 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 um colleagues and my children are going to read this so i just wanted to know what you know why you said this yeah or, or people call her a bimbo whatever it is yeah there's a lot of jealous people out there that's right that that often comes from you know envy or jealousy um because these people don't even know her they've probably never met her no, they're just looking for something to tweet. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, to take a step back for a second, Jillian, because there's a lot, you know, I run into a lot of women who have careers and they're interested in writing books. And I was wondering how, you know, back when you were writing New York characters, what were you doing at the time to be able to support yourself while you were writing that book? Uh, well, I was do. First of all, I did the book a little bit. It took me. Um, I did about half of the book before I even had a publisher, and I started it while I was in photography school. Um, and then I did the other part after, and I was just doing different freelance work um, as a photographer. Okay, freelance photography. Yeah, because yeah. boy, I've learned so much about what it takes to write a book in today's world um, yeah. because there's so many people doing it and you really have to set yourself apart. You do, yeah. And and also um, I, I do um, passive real estate investing. So I, I am an investor in different things, but um, but it's not. So there's an income from that, but, um, but it's not something that I have to go to every day. Okay. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, two things I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about your conversation with Sarah Blakely um, of Spanx, and then I'd love to find out what you're working on now. Um, as far as your next venture. Okay. Okay, we'll be right back. 
There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215 215- 233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. We have uh, with us this afternoon Jillian Zoe Segal, and she is the author of New York Characters, and also her latest book is called Getting There. Um, she had a wonderful opportunity to interview and speak to 30 uh, leaders, I would say, in their field, um, some very high caliber and big name people, and um, write a book about it and sharing some wonderful advice um, for people. W- one of the um, one of the other um, spotlights, I guess I'll say, was Sarah Blakely, and she, of course, is the founder of Spanx. And one of the things that she talked about that I thought was interesting was when she mentioned the importance of keeping your ideas to yourself um, so that the negative responses don't kind of get you off course. I think that's really important because when you have an idea, the first thing you want to do is, is share it with everyone, in particular, you know, your friends and family. And that can, you know, that can, you know, exactly what it's what she said, set you off course, because then you start to second guess yourself. What were your thoughts on that, Jillian? Uh, I think I think she has um, a great point, which leads me to the fact that you're going to have trouble getting me to talk about my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was afraid that might happen. I, of course, have to ask you. But, you know, if yeah, there's, I understand no. if you can't delve in, fully into it. No, but I love I love it. And so so Sarah's story is that um she she has a really interesting story. So she really wanted to be a lawyer growing up and her father was a lawyer. She did the debate team and everything. And then um when she um when it finally came time for her to take the LSAT, she bombed it. And so she sort of scraped herself up off the floor and tried again, and she did one point worse. So at that point, she was totally depressed, and she just drove off to get a job loading rides at Disneyland, literally. <laughs> right. So she worked there right. for a while. She actually wanted to be um, a character in the parade, but they, but it, it didn't work out. She wanted to be a chipmunk, and she was too tall. They were going to have her be something else. Anyway, she ended up loading rides, and then she were, um, got a job working for a company that sold fax machines door to door, cold calling, mm-hmm. and um, and she did that for eight years. And during that time, 
one day she was putting on a pair of white pants and did not like how her butt looked. And she wished that she could wear control top pantyhose underneath her pants, but the problem was she was wearing, you know, shoes that she didn't, you know, sandals. So, um, so she got her aha moment and she invented Spanx, which is basically footless pantyhose. And she kept this idea secret for a full year and she worked on it, on the name and getting a prototype made. And anyway, she's, for a whole year she was invested in this. And um, she didn't really, this was just her instinct, you know, to keep it a secret. And when she finally told her friends and family about her big idea, they laughed at her. They said, footless pantyhose? Are you kidding? And they, they thought she was joking. And then they said, you know, if it is a good idea, wouldn't the big guys have done it? And, okay, well, if it really is a good idea, then they'll, the big guys will just knock you off. So they tried to discourage her out of love from pursuing her big idea. Um, and she said that by that point she was already so invested in it that she wouldn't give up. Um, and that's why she gives people this advice. She says, you know, when you first have an idea and you're running around telling everyone about it and you're not very invested in it, you're very vulnerable. Because if someone says, I don't think that, or this already exists, or no one will like that, whatever it is, um, it's really easy to get knocked off course. So that that's the, the background to why she came up with this idea. But I think it's really great. And um, if you were to ask me about my biggest entrepreneurial failures, it would be good ideas that I had that I didn't pursue for the very reason Sarah says, which is that, um, you know, people, there were some naysayers out there who said, well, this or that or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it was. Um, and I thought, yeah, you're right. It's, I don't want to waste my time. Well, um, that's a hard, it's a hard thing to determine whether someone is giving you some good sound advice and you should take it or whether, you know, it is just kind of negative feedback. How do yeah. you, how do you figure that out? She, she doesn't say that you should keep it secret from everybody. She says keep it secret from people who can't directly help you move forward. So if you, if you have someone who is, um, you know, in the field that you're looking into and, you know, some kind of an authority figure in your eyes, then mm -hmm. you might want to listen to that person. Yeah. But she's really talking about, you know, the, um, the, the inclination to bounce it off of everyone you know. You know, like, right. hey, this, you know, like, because a lot of people, it's easier to say, to, to say no than it is to say yes. You know, it's easier to to point out reasons why something might not work because you don't want to um, encourage someone to make a risky move, you know, like quit their job and do this or that if it's not going to work out. You don't want to feel responsible. Right. So right. I think it's, it's easier to sort of to not take that route. Yeah. And, of course, someone who's who's going to make a big change, you know, from one career to another, uh, the people in their circle assume that they don't have the expertise to, to try this new venture. And that's so often not the case. Yes. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, Another um, person that you – let me ask you this question, Jillian. How did you go about writing this book? In other words, each person's um, chapter is kind of in the first person. So did you just kind of sit with a tape recorder and let them tell their story, or was it a QA and a back and forth? It was a Q&A, and um, I did research on everybody, and I asked everyone, you know, specific questions about things that I wanted to know about, but I also made sure to ask a lot of open-ended questions, because if you're an interviewer and you only ask about things you know about, you're not going to learn anything new. Right. So I had to ask definitely a lot of open-ended questions, and then I got information that wasn't already on the Internet. Um, And so basically I took the transcript of my conversation and I had it, uh, well, I had it transcribed. And then I edited, you know, what was probably about 20 pages down to five or six pages. Um, Because conversations meander. So I really cut a lot and I changed the order around. I might have taken something that was at the end and started with that whatever it was, and then I sent every single essay back to my subject for his or her approval. Okay. Yeah, I like so much how you did that, that way, that they, you know, it's their story and their words, um, and, and you summed it up beautifully. Yeah, I wanted it to feel, and I think it does, that, you know, like you're having an intimate conversation with each person. Yes. Um and and you know like like you hear their voice in your ear telling their story that's right um because that's what it was. I, I actually heard their voice, but I had to try to, tra- you know, translate that as best I could. Yeah. And again, because that's, you know, those when, when you do it in that fashion, um, that sticks with people. They remember they remember those conversations. Someone yeah, else. So they're very. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I want to be sure that we talk about Anderson Cooper, because, okay. gosh, you know, he, he just has such a compelling story, I think, for many reasons. And again, some of the reasons um, have been, you know, well known by people who, who follow his work and some may not. Um, he suffered, you know, two tragedies in his life. Um, but he is the epitome to me of someone who created his own opportunity. And and that's, you know, one of his, his best pearls of wisdom is, is that if someone doesn't give you the opportunity you're looking for, you go and create your own opportunity. So the fact that he went over with his camera all by himself to um, document, you know, war and, and some of the things that were going on in the Middle East in order to land that job as a correspondent, I thought, wow, that took so much guts and courage. Yeah, so so I'll tell his story a little bit because um, people listening will know, you know, don't, don't know. But um, but he, um, first of all, he comes from a very rich family. He comes from the Vanderbilt family. So a lot of times people like to mention this, and they assume that he had an easy life. Uh, because because there was money and that um, you know everything you know doors were opened for him because of that um, and neither of these things are true so when he was um, 
when uh, I'm going to actually read, I'll read the first couple sentences of his essay. It's, okay. My father died during heart bypass surgery when I was 10 years old. When I was 21, my 23-year-old brother committed suicide. He jumped off the terrace of our family's penthouse apartment as my mother pleaded for him to stay put. Mm. Um, and he goes on and talks about how this, you know, these tragedies affected him. Um, and then later on in his life, when he uh, decided he wanted to be a foreign news correspondent, he decided to sort of try the traditional route, and he couldn't even get an entry-level job not doing anything, not even getting coffee for anyone at any of the major networks. So through a friend that he went to high school with, he was able to get an in at a place called Channel One, which is, um, which is actually a company that produces news-oriented programs for high schools. And he became a fact checker there. And um, he realized very soon that when you start working and you're in a certain role, People tend to pigeonhole you, you know, in whatever role you're in. So people viewed him as a fact checker, and no one was going to come up to him and say, you know, you should be on air, you'd be perfect, or whatever. So mm-hmm. he realized, you know, that if you want to, um, if you want an opportunity, you've got to make that opportunity happen. Um, so he quit his job as a fact checker, and he borrowed a friend's video camera, and he made a fake press pass. And he flew overseas, and he lived for $5 a day. Um, He would sleep, you know, on rooftops, and he made his stories as, as interesting and dangerous as possible. And then he sold them to Channel One. He offered them to Channel One for such a low price that they couldn't refuse. And so his stories were broadcast in high schools, and that's how he, you know, launched his own career and was able to live his dream. Yeah, but, you know, there he just made it happen. You know, he's just a, such a great example of perseverance. He's, he yeah. thought, I know I have the ability to do this, and no one's going to hand it to me, so I'm just going to make it happen. Yep, that's what you've got to do. Yeah. You can't wait, wait, you know, for somebody to come up. And I actually, Sheryl Sandberg talks about this in Lean In and, mm-hmm. and calls it the tiara syndrome. But I think you can't expect that someone's going to walk in and put a tiara on your head. Right. You, know. <laughs> you can make your own, but it won't, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's not how the world works, that's unfortunately, right. even if you deserve that tiara. That's right. Listen, I want to make sure we can, you know, talk about as much as we can about what you're currently doing now that this book is is out and and done. What are you working on? Um, well, I'm working on three three different um, you know entrepreneurial ventures, but they're in they're so in the beginning stage that they're not really ready for radio. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't get one tidbit, huh? I thought I would break break news here today. It's the secret inner circle time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's anyone out there who could directly help these move forward. Well, we can <laughs> but, talk about um, that after. You know, you um, off air. Who you know? That's right. never know. Yeah. Um, you know what, Jillian? You know that this, this show is really about encouraging women and inspiring women and helping the, you know move the. Um, I, I'm 
not crazy about the term the feminist movement. I think what's happening today is different. You have a 13-year-old daughter, and um, I, you know, you have ventured out and done some things very independently on your own. And I wonder what kind of conversations you have with Sage, um, you know, about finding her own gifts and and making sure that she goes after what her dreams are. Um, you know what? This this book has been such a parenting gift to me, and I've heard this from a lot of other people who read it. You know, even if you're not so career focused, mm-hmm. it helps you talk to to somebody who is, and it helps you understand different personality types. Um, because I, I have 30 people who are all successful, and I forget how many, maybe eight of them never graduated college, right. believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so, you know, it's really taught me um, to look at children and to look at my daughter and see who she is and who, you know, what she excels at and to allow her to, you know, to discover this and focus on, on what, you know, what she loves. Um, I also took her to several of the interviews and photo shoots with me. I photographed everybody in the book. I think I, I mentioned that in the beginning. But so I took her um, as often as I could um, because I think that if you can get to know or see or meet or even just reading these essays, it makes um, success seem a little more attainable because they're just regular people. They're That's just right. regular people. And I think, you know, if, you, if you've never got, you know, taken the time to, to learn this, either by reading about them, and, and, and getting there is incredible for this because they really open up and talk about their, you know, they, they show their underbelly That's in right. this book. Um, but I think that that makes you feel like you could do it, too. That's right. You know, it's, it, it's very relatable. So, um, yeah, so I, I hope that um, that this book, you know, continues to inspire my daughter um, in in different ways. But it's really also inspired me in, you know, how, how to raise her and how to, um, you know, react to if she doesn't get good grades. Thankfully, she still is, but, you know... <laughs> um, <laughs> But but um, but you know just to know that that you you can't look at um, if someone's not good at math. Okay, so what? Like you've got to do your best, but you could go into be a major success in this world and suck at math. You know. Right. Right. No, all this advice crosses over into you know per- personal and professional. Um, lives. And um, one of the things I was impressed by with you and the book was how you were able to maneuver past um, all of the gatekeepers of many of these big name folks. What do, what's your advice on that? Because I know there's a lot of people for for many different reasons. Um, that can be an obstacle. You're trying to get to someone um, for business purposes or a career move, and it is difficult to get past those gatekeepers. How did you do that? Um, well, so the um, 
the the biggest question I get asked about this book, you know, people look at it and they look at the names like, you know, Warren Buffett, Michael Bloomberg, uh, Anderson Cooper, you know, and they say, how did you get to these people? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did, I wrote a, a, a whole article on it that's like in, um, in Fortune magazine. Um, and... And um, basically, you know, so I could talk a lot about it, is my point, that there there was, like, you know, enough for... But it was an exercise in polite persistence mm-hmm. and throwing my ego out the door. Because you can't get... Um, you have to know, you know, when you're going for something. And it could be going for investors for your company or, you know, guests for your radio show or whatever it is you're going for, you're not going to hit it a lot of the times. Um, And you have to not take it personally and not, you know, not get discouraged and keep on trying and keep on trying and eventually um, you, you know, you get there. Um, And Warren Buffett, you know, who's the most successful investor in history, he says that there are a lot of opportunities he's missed out on. There There have been businesses he's known about decided not to invest in and then they become major successes um but he said there's no list there's no list of that out there (laughs) there's just a list of all the companies that have you know that he's invested in that have become successful yeah what a Um, great what a great point that you know someone like him even even warren buffett is fallible in the area of investing that that makes other people just think okay well then i i should still keep you know plugging along You've got to keep going. So when I was doing my book, you know, I reached out to so many people and I got ignored and rejected. And and so I, I, I sort of explain it that if you can't get in the front door, try the back door. If you can't right. get in the back door, try the side door. Right. <laughs> the side door's locked. Try crawling in a window. Right. If you can't get in the window, just wait a while and try the front door again. Someone might be there this time. <laughs> At least until they absolutely say no, stop bothering us. Yes, um, you know, a lot of times it's maybe. No, yeah, yeah. That's you get so a tr- final no. That's right. But, but a lot of times a no is a no from somebody and you, the person you're after has never even seen the request, you know. That's People right. have gatekeepers, and they need to have gatekeepers because, you know, if you didn't delegate anything, you wouldn't have time for anything. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the more successful and more well-known the, uh, you become, you know, the less time you have. So it's not a matter of not wanting to return people's calls and emails. It's that you physically cannot. Yes. No, if if Warren Buffett read every single letter he got, he'd have no time to read the newspaper or, you know, yeah. invest in anything or whatever. So so you you know, they have everyone has people um who sort of work for them and screen things for them. Yeah. Tell me, um, Jillian, how you prepare for your speaking engagements. I understand that you, um, you've you done some speaking at companies like Google and Lexus and um, Barnes & Noble. And, you know, what? how do you prepare for that and, and what are your topics? Um, well, you know, I generally talk about my book, but there's um, a lot of different areas to talk about. So it depends who the audience is. Mm-hmm. And I'll tailor a talk, you know, towards that because it's 
a very diverse group, uh, you know, of of people. So if it's for an art artist group, for lawyers, for salespeople, for uh, entrepreneurs, you know, it just it depends. Um, so, and how do I prepare? Well, I I guess I I try to think about the audience and what will appeal to the audience, and then I practice a lot because it doesn't come naturally to me. So everyone's got their strengths and weaknesses, and I never saw it as you know. Well, actually, I think I'm good at it now, but um. I learned a lesson a long time ago. Um, it was actually from my ex-husband, and I was going to a wedding with him, and it was one of my good friends from college. And um, and he said, what are you going to say in your speech? Because I was going to make a speech. And I said, I don't know. Like, I thought, don't you just go up there? This, I was in my 20s. <laughs> don't you just go up there and talk? Like, I didn't think I had to plan ahead. I just thought you either were good at that or you weren't, and I wasn't. And he said, no, you have to, you know, write it and practice it and then practice it again in front of the mirror and practice it for your dog. Just, you know, <laughs> just like. You've got to you've got to do that, and then, and and that was sort of a revelation for me because I thought, oh my God, it's not that I am bad at at this; it's just that I wasn't going about it in the right way, and I didn't realize. I thought all these people just had this gift that I didn't have, yeah, you know, for for giving a good speech. So. I practice a lot mm-hmm. for, for my public speaking. Yeah. Well, sometimes I think it's okay to speak from the heart, and sometimes that comes across in a much more authentic way than, than you know, a prepared speech. And as you said, it depends on the audience and what the event is about. It depends what it is and what, you know, it, like if you're answering questions, then you're speaking from the heart but if you know if you want to make sure that you cover certain material and you don't repeat yourself and you don't you know right you've got to prepare you got to prepare and then when you you remember to give all those examples that you wanted to give that's right and when you're prepared you're less nervous Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of the other um, pearls of wisdom that I liked and I wrote down was from Helene Gale, a president and CEO of Care USA. And I think that this is something that she had said to her children. Um, Social change is better achieved by being for something rather than against something. I think mm-hmm. that's a great, a great piece of advice. What did, what did you take away from that? Yeah, I love that, too, because she said she grew up in a generation where everyone was protesting this or that or this or that, you know, like, so, okay, that that does something, but what are you going to do to change? You know, if you want to, you've got to do something about it. You can't just sit on the sidelines and, and call out everything you don't like. You have to actually do something. So... Um, I think that's that's a great piece of advice. Yeah, it's I'm glad a, you like it. I did. It, I think it's a great mindset that kind of leads you to you know what you should be doing to think about how can I make a difference, how can I contribute, rather than you know complaining about what you don't like and see out there and and what you're against. Yeah. 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 
I agree. And just we have a few minutes left. I would love to know what your um, what what direction would you like to see? And for lack of a better term, I'll say women's movement. Um, what direction would you like to see that go in 2016? As far as you know, just really encouraging women um, like you and many others have done to follow their hearts and do what it is that they are good at and that brings them fulfillment. Um, leadership, I think, is is more important now than ever. And of course, we believe that you know female leaders are going to be the ones to um, make a big difference in the world. What are some of the things you'd like to see change um, from all of the um, networking you do? Um, well, I think you know there's there's so many double standards out there, and I and I wish there weren't. Um, you know, with it's sort of how women are supposed to behave. Um, you know, I, first of all, I love Lean In. I quoted Sheryl Sandberg already, but I think she does a great a great job um, in discussing you know this this topic, and I stand by you know all or most of what she said. Um, but I think I think it's it's tough for women, um, you know, networking because it's hard for a woman to network with a man. Um, because men won't network with women the same way they'll network with each other, you know. That's so you right. can't form form um, a friendship with a man if you're a woman and do business, you know, like like they do with each other because it's going to be seen as dating or something. Yeah. Um, so I guess you know I think it's good for people to to keep this in mind, and if you keep this in mind, then maybe things will change. Um, and and women will have an easier time networking and finding mentors because uh, I think women have a hard time. Um, there aren't you know as many female out there, and and therefore there aren't as many females be mentors. Yeah. Well, we're going to hope to change that this year. And uh, Jillian, I thank you so much for joining us. I wish you continued success with the book. Dr. Dupree, thank you again for being with us. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you so much.